Chapter Twenty Seven of the Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Showing that old friends may not only appear with new faces, but in false colours, that people are prone to bite, and that biters may sometimes be bitten. Mr. Bailey, Junior, for the sporting character Wylam of general utility at Todgers had now regularly set up in life under that name, without troubling himself to obtain from the legislature a direct licence in the form of a private bill, which of all kinds and classes of bills is without exception the most unreasonable in its charges. Mr. Bailey, Jr., just tall enough to be seen by an inquiring eye, gazing indolently at society from beneath the apron of his master's cab, drove slowly up and down Pall Mall about the hour of noon, in waiting for his governor. The horse of distinguished family, who had Capricorn for his nephew, and Cauliflower for his brother, showed himself worthy of its high relations by champing at the bit until his chest was white with foam, and rearing like a horse in heraldry. The plated harness and the patent leather glittered in the sun. Pedestrians admired. Mr. Bailey was complacent, but unmoved. He seemed to say, a barrow, good people, a mere barrow, nothing to what we could do if we chose. And on he went, squaring his short green arms outside the apron, as if he were hooked on to it by his armpits. Mr. Bailey had a great opinion of brother to Cauliflower, and estimated his powers highly, but he never told him so. On the contrary, it was his practice in driving that animal to assail him with disrespectful, if not injurious expressions, such as, ah would you did you think it then where are you going to now no you won't my lad and similar fragmentary remarks these being usually accompanied by a jerk of the rein or a crack of the whip led to many trials of strength between them and to many contentions for the upper hand terminating now and then in china shops and other unusual goals as mr bailey had already hinted to his friend poll sweedlepipe on the present occasion, Mr. Bailey, being in spirits, was more than commonly hard upon his charge, in consequence of which that fiery animal confined himself almost entirely to his hind legs in displaying his paces, had constantly got himself into positions with reference to the cabriolet that very much amazed the passengers in the street. But Mr. Bailey, not at all disturbed, had still a shower of pleasantries to bestow on any one who crossed his path as calling to a full-grown coal-heaver in a wagon, who for a moment blocked the way, now young and who trusted you with a cart, inquiring of elderly ladies who wanted to cross and ran back again, why didn't you go to the workhouse and get an order to be buried, tempting boys with friendly words to get up behind, and immediately afterwards cutting them down, and the like flashes of a cheerful humour, which he would occasionally relieve by going round St. James's Square at a hand-gallop, and coming slowly into Pall Mall by another entry, as if, in the interval, his pace had been a perfect crawl. It was not until these amusements had been very often repeated, and the apple-stall at the corner had sustained so many miraculous escapes as to appear impregnable, that Mr. Bailey was summoned to the door of a certain house in Pall Mall, and turning short, obeyed the call and jumped out. It was not until he had held the bridle for some minutes longer, every jerk of cauliflower's brother's head and every twitch of cauliflower's brother's nostril 
taking him off his legs in the meanwhile, that two persons entered the vehicle, one of whom took the reins and drove rapidly off. Nor was it until Mr. Bailey had run after it some hundred yards in vain, that he managed to lift his short leg into the iron step, and finally to get his boots upon the little footboard behind. Then indeed he became a sight to see, and standing now on one foot and now upon the other, now trying to look round the cab on this side, now on that, and now endeavouring to peep over the top of it, as it went dashing in amongst the carts and coaches, was from head to heel Newmarket. The appearance of Mr. Bailey's governor as he drove along fully justified that enthusiastic youth's description of him to the wandering pole. He had a world of jet-black shining hair upon his head, upon his cheeks, upon his chin, upon his upper lip. His clothes, symmetrically made, were of the newest fashion and the costliest kind. Flowers of golden blue and green and blushing red were on his waistcoat. Precious chains and jewels sparkled on his breast. His fingers, clogged with brilliant rings, were as unwieldy as summer flies, but newly rescued from a honey-pot. The daylight mantled in his gleaming hat and boots as in polished glass, and yet, though changed his name and changed his outward surface, it was Tig. Though turned and twisted upside down and inside out, as great men have been sometimes known to be, though no longer Montague Tig, but Tig Montague, still it was Tig, the same satanic, gallant, military Tig. The brass was burnished, lacquered, newly stamped, yet it was the true Tig metal notwithstanding. Beside him sat a smiling gentleman of less pretensions and of business looks, whom he addressed as David, surely not the David of the—how shall it be phrased—the triumvirate of golden balls, not David, tapster at the Lombard's arms. Yes, the very man. The secretary's salary, David, said Mr. Montague, the office being now established, is eight hundred pounds per annum, with his house rent, coals and candles free, his five and twenty shares he holds, of course. Is that enough? David smiled and nodded, and coughed behind a little locked portfolio which he carried, with an air that proclaimed him to be the secretary in question. "'If that's enough,' said Montague, "'I will propose it at the board to-day, in my capacity as chairman.' The secretary smiled again, laughed indeed this time, and said, rubbing his nose slyly with one end of the portfolio, "'It was a capital thought, wasn't it?' "'It was a capital thought, David?' Mr. Montague inquired. The Anglo-Bengalee, tittered the secretary. The Anglo-Bengalee Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company is rather a capital concern, I hope, David, said Montague. Capital indeed, cried the secretary with another laugh, in one sense. The only important one, observed the chairman, which is number one, David. What, asked the secretary, bursting into another laugh, what would be the paid-up capital according to the next prospectus? A figure of two, and as many oughts after it as the printer can get into the same line, replied his friend. Ha-ha! <laughs> At this they both laughed, the secretary so vehemently, that in kicking up his feet he kicked the apron open, and nearly started Cauliflower's brother into an oyster-shop, not to mention Mr. Bailey's receiving such a sudden swing, that he held on for a moment quite a young fame, by one strap and no legs. "'What a chap you are!' exclaimed David admiringly, when this little alarm had subsided. "'Say genius, David, genius!' "'Well, upon my soul, you are a genius, then,' said David. "'I always knew you had the gift of the gab, of course, but I never believed you were half the man you are. How could I? I rise with circumstances, David. 
that's a point of genius in itself said tigg if you were to lose a hundred pound wager to me at this minute david and were to pay it which is most confoundedly improbable i should rise in a mental point of view directly it is due to mr tigg to say that he had already risen with his opportunities and peculating on a grander scale he had become a grander man altogether ha ha cried the secretary laying his hand with growing familiarity upon the chairman's arm when i look at you and think of your property in bengal being <laughs> the half-expressed idea seemed no less ludicrous to mr tigg than to his friend for he laughed too heartily being resumed david being amenable your property in bengal being amenable to all claims upon the company when i look at you and think of that you might tickle me into fits by waving the feather of a pen at me upon my soul you might it's a devilish fine property said tigg montague to be amenable to any claims the preserve of tigers alone is worth a mint of money david david could only reply in the intervals of his laughter oh what a chap you are and so continued to laugh and hold his sides and wipe his eyes for some time without offering any other observation a capital idea said tigg returning after a time to his companion's first remark no doubt it was a capital idea it was my idea no no it was my idea said david hang it let a man have some credit didn't i say to you that i'd saved a few pounds you said didn't i say to you interposed tigg that i had come into a few pounds certainly you did returned david warmly but that's not the idea who said that if we put the money together we could furnish an office and make a show and who said retorted mr tigg that provided we did it on a sufficiently large scale we could furnish an office and make a show without any money at all be rational and just and calm and tell me whose idea was that why there david was obliged to confess you had the advantage of me i admit but i don't put myself on a level with you i only want a little credit in the business all the credit you deserve to have said tigg plain work of the company david figures books circulars advertisements pen ink and paper sealing wax and wafers is admirably done by you you are a first-rate groveller i don't dispute it but the ornamental department david the inventive and poetical department is entirely yours said his friend no question of it but with such a swell turnout as this and all the handsome things you've got about you and the life you lead i mean to say it's a precious comfortable department too does it gain the purpose is it anglo bengalee asked tigg yes said david could you undertake it yourself demanded tigg no said david ha ha laughed tigg then be contented with your station and your profits david my fine fellow and bless the day that made us acquainted across the counter of our common uncle for it was a golden day to you it will have been already gathered from the conversation of these two worthies that they were embarked upon an enterprise of some magnitude in which they addressed the public in general from the strong position of having everything to gain and nothing at all to lose and which based upon this great principle was thriving pretty comfortably the anglo-bengalee disinterested loan and life assurance company started into existence one morning not an infant institution but a grown-up company running alone at a great pace and doing business right and left with a branch in a first floor over a tailor's at the west end of the town and main offices in a new street in the city comprising the upper part of a spacious house resplendent in stucco and plate glass with wire blinds in all the windows and anglo-bengalee worked into the pattern of every one of them on the doorpost was painted again in large letters 
offices of the Anglo-Bengali Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company, and on the door was a large brass plate with the same inscription, always kept very bright, as courting inquiry, staring the city out of countenance after hours on working days, and all day long on Sundays, and looking bolder than the bank. Within the offices were newly plastered, newly painted, newly papered, newly countered, newly floor-clothed, newly tabled, newly chaired, and newly fitted up in every way with goods that were substantial and expensive, and designed, like the company, to last. Business, look at the green ledgers with red backs, like strong cricket-balls beaten flat, the court guides directories, day-books, almanacs, letter-boxes, weighing-machines for letters, rows of fire-buckets for dashing out a conflagration in its first spark, and saving the immense wealth in notes and bonds belonging to the company. Look at the iron safes, the clock, the office seal in its capacious self, security for anything, solidity, look at the massive blocks of marble in the chimney-pieces, and the gorgeous parapet on the top of the house, publicity, why Anglo-Bengali Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company, is painted on the very coal-scuttles. It is repeated at every turn until the eyes are dazzled with it and the head is giddy. It is engraved upon the top of all the letter-paper and it makes a scroll-work round the seal and it shines out of the porter's buttons and is repeated twenty times in every circular and public notice wherein one David Crimple, Esquire, Secretary and Resident Director, takes the liberty of inviting your attention to the accompanying statement of the advantages offered by the Anglo-Bengali Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company, and fully proves to you that any connection on your part with that establishment must result in a perpetual Christmas box and constantly increasing bonus to yourself, and that nobody can run any risk by the transaction except the office, which, in its great liberality, is pretty sure to lose. And this, David Crimple, Esquire, submits to you and the odds are heavy you believe him, is the best guarantee that can be reasonably suggested by the board and management for its permanence and stability. This gentleman's name, by the way, had been originally Crimp, but as the word was susceptible of an awkward construction, and might be misrepresented, he had altered it to Crimple. Lest, with all these proofs and confirmations, any man should be suspicious of the Anglo-Bengali Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company, should doubt in tiger, cab or person, Tig Montague Esquire, of Pall Mall and Bengal, or any other name in the imaginative list of directors, there was a porter on the premises, a wonderful creature, in a vast red waistcoat and a short-tailed pepper-and-salt coat, who carried more conviction to the minds of sceptics than the whole establishment without him. No confidences existed between him and the directorship, Nobody knew where he had served last. No character or explanation had been given or required. No questions had been asked on either side. This mysterious being, relying solely on his figure, had applied for the situation and had been instantly engaged on his own terms. They were high, but he knew, doubtless, that no man could carry such an extent of waistcoat as himself, and had felt the full value of his capacity to such an institution. When he sat upon a seat erected for him in the corner of the office, with his glazed hat hanging on a peg over his head, it was impossible to doubt the respectability of the concern. It went on doubling itself with every square inch of his red waistcoat 
until, like the problem of the nails in the horse's shoes, the total became enormous. People had been known to apply to effect an insurance on their lives for a thousand pounds, and looking at him to beg, before the form of proposal was filled up, that it might be made too. And yet he was not a giant. His coat was rather small than otherwise. The whole charm was in his waistcoat. Respectability, competence, property or Bengal or anywhere else, responsibility to any amount of the part of the company that employed him, were all expressed in that one garment. Rival offices had endeavoured to lure him away. Lombard Street itself had beckoned to him. Rich companies had whispered, be a beadle. But still he continued faithful to the Anglo-Bengalee. Whether he was a deep rogue or a stately simpleton, it was impossible to make out. But he appeared to believe in the Anglo-Bengalee. He was grave with imaginary cares of office, and having nothing whatever to do, and something less to take care of, would look as if the pressure of his enormous duties, and a sense of the treasure in the company's strong-room, made him a solemn and thoughtful man. As the cabriolet drove up to the door, this officer appeared bareheaded on the pavement, crying out aloud, Room for the chairman, room for the chairman, if you please, much to the admiration of bystanders, who, it is needless to say, had their attention directed to the Anglo-Bengali company thenceforth by that means. Mr. Tigg leapt gracefully out, followed by the managing director, who was by this time very distant and respectful and ascended the stairs, still preceded by the porter, who cried as he went, By your leave there, by your leave, the chairman of the board, gentlemen, in like manner, but in a still more stentorian voice he ushered the chairman through the public office, where some humble clients were transacting business, into an awful chamber labelled board-room, the door of which sanctuary immediately closed and screened the great capitalist from vulgar eyes. The boardroom had a turkey carpet in it, a sideboard, a portrait of Tig Montague Esquire as chairman, a very imposing chair of office, garnished with an ivory hammer, and a little handbell, and a long table set out at intervals with sheets of blotting paper, fool's cap, clean pens, and inkstands. The chairman, having taken his seat with great solemnity, the secretary supported him on his right hand, and the porter stood bolt upright behind them forming a warm background of waistcoat. This was the board, everything else being a light-hearted little fiction. "'Bullamy,' said Mr. Tigg. "'Sir,' replied the porter, "'let the medical officer know, with my compliments, that I wish to see him.' Bullamy cleared his throat and bustled out into the office, crying, "'The chairman of the board wishes to see the medical officer. By your leave there, by your leave.' He soon returned with a gentleman in question and at both openings of the boardroom door, at his coming in and at his going out, simple clients were seen to stretch their necks and stand upon their toes, thirsting to catch the slightest glimpse of that mysterious chamber. "'Joblin, my dear friend,' said Mr. Tigg, "'how are you?' "'Well, I mean, wait outside. Crimple, don't leave us. Jobling, my good fellow, I am glad to see you.' "'And how are you, Mr. Montague, eh?' said the medical officer, throwing himself luxuriously into an easy chair. They were all easy chairs in the boardroom, and taking a handsome gold snuff-box from the pocket of his black satin waistcoat. How are you? A little worn with business, eh? If so, rest. A little feverish from wine, hm? If so, water. Nothing at all the matter, and quite comfortable? Then take some lunch. A very wholesome thing at this time of day, to strengthen the gastric juices with lunch, Mr. Montague. 
the medical officer he was the same medical officer who had followed poor old anthony chuzzlewit to the grave and who had attended mrs gamp's patient at the bull smiled in saying these words and casually added as he brushed some grains of snuff from his shirt-tail i always take it myself about this time of day do you know bully me said the chairman ringing the little bell sir lunch not on my account i hope said the doctor you are very good thank you i'm quite ashamed ha <laughs> ha if i had been a sharp practitioner mr montague i shouldn't have mentioned it without a fee for you may depend upon it my dear sir that if you don't make a point of taking lunch you'll very soon come under my hands allow me to illustrate this in mr crimple's leg the resident director gave an involuntary start for the doctor in the heat of his demonstration caught it up and down and laid it across his own as if he were going to take it off then and there in mr crimple's leg you'll observe pursued the doctor turning back his cuffs and spanning the limb with both hands where mr crimple's knee fits into the socket here there is that is to say between the bone and the socket a certain quantity of animal oil what do you pick my leg out for said mr crimple looking with something of an anxious expression at his limb it's the same with other legs ain't it never you mind my good sir returned the doctor shaking his head whether it's the same with other legs or not the same but i do mind said david i take a particular case mr montague returned the doctor as illustrating my remark you observe in this portion of mr crimple's leg sir there is a certain amount of animal oil in every one of mr crimple's joints sir there is more or less the same deposit very good if mr crimple neglects his meals or fails to take his proper quantity of rest that oil wanes and becomes exhausted what is the consequence mr crimple's bones sink down into their sockets sir and mr crimple becomes a weazen puny stunted miserable man the doctor let mr crimple's leg fall suddenly as if he were already in that agreeable condition turned down his wristbands again and looked triumphantly at the chairman we know a few secrets of nature in our profession sir said the doctor of course we do we study for that we pass the hall and the college for that and we take our station in society by that it's extraordinary how little is known on these subjects generally where do you suppose now the doctor closed one eye as he leaned back smilingly in his chair and formed a triangle with his hands of which his two thumbs composed the base where do you suppose mr crimple's stomach is mr crimple more agitated than before clapped his hand immediately below his waistcoat not at all cried the doctor not at all quite a popular mistake my good sir you're altogether deceived i feel it there when it's out of order that's all i know said crimple you think you do replied the doctor but science knows better there was a patient of mine once touching one of the many mourning rings upon his fingers and slightly bowing his head a gentleman who did the honour to make a very handsome mention of me in his will in testimony as he was pleased to say of the unremitting zeal talent attention of my friend and medical attendant john joggling esq m r c s who was so overcome by the idea of having all his life laboured under an erroneous view of the locality of this important organ that when i assured him on my professional reputation he was mistaken he burst into tears put out his hand and said jobling god bless you immediately afterwards he became speechless and was ultimately buried at brixton by your leave there cried bullamy without by your leave refreshments for the boardroom ha said the doctor jocularly as he rubbed his hands and drew his chair nearer to the table the true life assurance mr montague the best policy in the world my dear sir 
we should be provident and eat and drink whenever we can eh, mr crimple the resident director acquiesced rather sulkily as if the gratification of replenishing his stomach had been impaired by the unsettlement of his preconceived opinions in reference to its situation but the appearance of the porter and under porter with a tray covered with a snow-white cloth which being thrown back displayed a pair of cold roast fowls flanked by some potted meats and a cool salad quickly restored his good humour it was enhanced still further by the arrival of a bottle of excellent madeira and another of champagne and he soon attacked the repast with an appetite scarcely inferior to that of the medical officer the lunch was handsomely served with a profusion of rich glass plate and china which seemed to denote that eating and drinking on a showy scale formed no unimportant item in the business of the anglo-bengalee directorship as it proceeded the medical officer grew more and more joyous and red-faced insomuch that every mouthful he ate and every drop of wine he swallowed seemed to impart new lustre to his eyes and to light up new sparks in his nose and forehead in certain quarters of the city and its neighbourhood mr jobling was as we have already seen in some measure a very popular character he had a portentously sagacious chin and a pompous voice with a rich huskiness in some of its tones that went directly to the heart like a ray of light shining through a ruddy medium of choice old burgundy his neckerchief and shirt frill were ever of the whitest his clothes of the blackest and sleekest his gold watch chain of the heaviest and his seals of the largest his boots which were always of the brightest creaked as he walked perhaps he could shake his head rub his hands or warm himself before a fire better than any man alive and he had a peculiar way of smacking his lips and saying ah at intervals while patients detailed their symptoms which inspired great confidence it seemed to express i know what you're going to say better than you do but go on go on as he talked on all occasions whether he had anything to say or not it was unanimously observed to him that he was full of anecdote and his experience and profit from it were considered for the same reason to be something much too extensive for description his female patients could never praise him too highly and the coldest of his male admirers would always say this for him to their friends that whatever jobling's professional skill might be and it could not be denied that he had a very high reputation he was one of the most comfortable fellows you ever saw in your life jobling was for many reasons and not last in the list because his connection lay principally among tradesmen and their families exactly the sort of person whom the anglo-bengalee company wanted for a medical officer but jobling was far too knowing to connect himself with the company in any closer ties than as a paid and well-paid functionary or to allow his connection to be misunderstood abroad if he could help it hence he always stated the case to an inquiring patient after this manner why my dear sir with regard to the anglo-bengalee my information you see is limited very limited i am the medical officer in consideration of a certain monthly payment the labourer is worthy of his hire biz dat qui cito dat classical scholar jobling thinks the patient well-read man and i receive it regularly therefore i am bound so far as my own knowledge goes to speak well of the establishment nothing can be fairer than jobling's conduct thinks the patient who has just paid jobling's bill himself if you put any question to me my dear friend says the doctor touching the responsibility or capital of the company there i am at fault for i have no head for figures and not being a shareholder 
i am delicate of showing any curiosity whatever on the subject delicacy your amiable lady will agree with me i am sure should be one of the first characteristics of a medical man nothing can be finer or more gentlemanly than jobling's feeling thinks the patient very good my dear sir so the matter stands you don't know mr montague i am sorry for it a remarkably handsome man and quite the gentleman in every respect property i am told in india house and everything belonging to him beautiful costly furniture on the most elegant and lavish scale and pictures which even in the anatomical point of view are perfection in case you should ever think of doing anything with the company i'll pass you you may depend upon it i can conscientiously report you a healthy subject if i understand any man's constitution it's yours and this little indisposition has done him more good ma'am says the doctor turning to the patient's wife than if he had swallowed the contents of half the nonsensical bottles in my surgery for they are nonsense to tell the honest truth one half of them are nonsense compared with such a constitution as his jobling is the most friendly creature i ever met with in my life thinks the patient and upon my word of honour i'll consider of it commission to you doctor on four new policies and a loan this morning eh said crimple looking when they had finished lunch over some papers brought in by the porter well done jobling my dear friend said tigg long life to you no no nonsense upon my word i've no right to draw upon the commission said the doctor i haven't really it's picking your pocket i don't recommend anybody here i only say what i know my patients ask me what i know and i tell em what i know nothing else caution is my weak side that's the truth and always was from a boy that is said the doctor filling his glass caution in behalf of other people whether i would repose confidence in this company myself if i had not been paying money elsewhere for many years that's quite another question he tried to look as if there were no doubt about it but feeling that he did it but indifferently changed the theme and praised the wine talking of wine said the doctor reminds me of one of the finest glasses of light old port i ever drank in my life and that was at a funeral you have not seen anything of that party mr montague have you handing him a card he's not buried i hope said tigg as he took it the honour of his company is not requested if he is <laughs> laughed the doctor no not quite he was honourably connected with that very occasion though oh said tigg smoothing his moustache as he cast his eyes upon the name i recollect no he has not been here the words were on his lips when bullamy entered and presented a card to the medical officer talk of the what's-his-name observed the doctor rising and he's sure to appear eh said tigg why no mr montague returned the doctor we will not say that in the present case for this gentleman is very far from it so much the better retorted tigg so much more the adaptable to the anglo bengalee bullamy clear the table and take things out to the other door mr crimple business shall i introduce him asked jobling i shall be eternally delighted answered tigg kissing his hand and smiling sweetly the doctor disappeared into the outer office and immediately returned with jonas chuzzlewit mr montague said jobling allow me my friend mr chuzzlewit my dear friend our chairman now do you know he added checking himself with infinite policy and looking around with a smile that's a very singular instance of the force of example it really is a very remarkable instance of the force of example i say our chairman why do i say our chairman because he is not my chairman you know i have no connection with the company farther than giving them for a certain fee and reward my poor opinion as a medical man 
precisely as I may give it any day to Jack Noakes or Tom Styles, then why do I say our chairman? Simply because I hear the phrase constantly repeated about me, such as the involuntary operation of the mental faculty in the imitative biped man. Mr. Crimple, I believe you never take snuff. Injudicious, you should. Pending these remarks on the part of the doctor, and the lengthened and sonorous pitch with which he followed them up, Jonas took a seat at the board, as ungainly a man as ever he has been within the reader's knowledge. It is too common with all of us, but it is especially in the nature of a mean mind, to be overawed by fine clothes and fine furniture. They had a very decided influence on Jonas. "'Now you two gentlemen have business to discuss, I know,' said the doctor, "'and your time is precious. So is mine, for several lives are waiting for me in the next room, and I have a round of visits to make after, after I have taken them. Having had the happiness to introduce you to each other, I may go about my business. Good-bye. But allow me, Mr. Montague, before I go, to say this of my friend, who sits beside you. That gentleman has done more, sir, wrapping his snuff-box solemnly, to reconcile me to human nature than any man alive or dead. Good-bye. With these words, Jobling bolted abruptly out of the room, and proceeded in his own official department to impress the lives in waiting with a sense of his keen conscientiousness in the discharge of his duty, and the great difficulty of getting into the Anglo-Bengalee, by feeling their pulses, looking at their tongues, listening at their ribs, poking them in the chest, and so forth. Though, if he didn't well know beforehand whatever kind of lives they were, the Anglo-Bengalee would accept them readily. He was far from being the jobbling that his friend considered him, and was not the original jobbling, but a spurious imitation. Mr. Crimple also departed on the business of the morning, and Jonas Chuzzlewit and Tigg were left alone. "'I'll learn from our friend,' said Tigg, drawing his chair towards Jonas, with a winning ease of manner, "'that you have been thinking—' "'Oh, Ecod, then he'd no right to say so,' cried Jonas, interrupting. "'I don't tell him my thoughts. If he took it into his head that I was coming here for such or such a purpose, why, that's his lookout. I don't stand committed by that. Jonas said this offensively enough, for over and above the habitual distrust of his character, it was in his nature to seek to revenge himself on the fine clothes and the fine furniture, in exact proportion as if he had been unable to withstand their influence. If I come here to ask a question or two, and get a document or two to consider of, I don't bind myself to anything. Let's understand that, you know, said Jonas. My dear fellow, cried Tigg, clapping him on the shoulder, I applaud your frankness. If men like you and I speak openly at first, all possible misunderstanding is avoided. Why should I disguise what you know so well, but what the crowd never dream of? We companies are all birds of prey, mere birds of prey. The only question is whether in serving our own turn we can serve yours too, whether in double-lining our own nest we can put a single living into yours. Oh, you're in our secret. You're behind the scenes. We'll make a merit of dealing plainly with you when we know we can't help it. It was remarked on the first introduction of Mr. Jonas into these pages, that there is a simplicity of cunning no less than a simplicity of innocence, and that in all matters involving a faith in knavery, he was the most credulous of men. If Mr. Tigg had preferred any claim to high and honourable dealing, Jonas would have suspected him, though he had been a very model of probity. But when he gave utterance to Jonas's own thoughts of everything and everybody, Jonas began to feel that he was a pleasant fellow and one to be talked to freely. He changed his position in the chair, 
not for a less awkward but for a more boastful attitude and smiling in his miserable conceit rejoined you ain't a bad man of business mr montague you know how to set about it i will say tut tut said tigg nodding confidentially and showing his white teeth we are not children mr chuzzlewit we are grown men i hope jonas assented and said after a short silence first spreading out his legs and sticking one arm akimbo to show how perfectly at home he was the truth is don't say the truth interposed tigg with another grin it's so like humbug greatly charmed by this jonas began again the long and short of it is better muttered tigg much better that i didn't consider myself very well used by one or two of the old companies in some negotiations i've had with them once had i mean they started objections they had no right to start and put questions they had no right to put and carried things much too high for my taste as he made these observations he cast down his eyes and looked curiously at the carpet mr tigg looked curiously at him he made so long a pause that tigg came to the rescue and said in his pleasantest manner take a glass of wine no no returned jonas with a cunning shake of the head none of that thank ye no wine over business all very well for you but it wouldn't do for me what an old hand you are mr chuzzlewit said tigg leaning back in his chair and leering at him through his half-shut eyes jonas shook his head again as much as to say you're right there and then resumed jocosely not such an old hand either but that i've been and got married that's rather green you'll say perhaps it is especially as she's young but one never knows what might happen to these women so i'm just thinking of insuring her life it is but fair you know that a man should secure some consolation in case of meeting with such a loss if anything can console him under such heart-breaking circumstances murmured tigg with his eyes shut up as before exactly returned jonas if anything can now supposing i did it here i should do it cheap i know and easy without bothering her about it which i'd much rather not do for it's just in a woman's way to take it into her head if you talk to her about such things that she's going to die directly so it is cried tigg kissing his hand in honour of the sex you're quite right sweet silly fluttering little simpletons well said jonas on that account you know because offence has been given me in other quarters i wouldn't mind patronising this company but i want to know what sort of security there is for the company's going on that's the not the truth cried tigg holding up his jewelled hand don't use that sunday school expression please the long and the short of it said jonas the long and the short of it is what's the security the paid-up capital my dear sir said tigg referring to some papers on the table is at this present moment oh i understand all about paid-up capitals you know said jonas you do cried tigg stopping short i should hope so he turned the papers down again and moving nearer to him said in his ear i know you do look at me it was not much in jonas's way to look straight at anybody but thus requested he made a shift to take a tolerable survey of the chairman's features the chairman fell back a little to give him a better opportunity you know me he inquired elevating his eyebrows you recollect you've seen me before why well, i thought i remembered your face when i first come in said jonas gazing at it but i couldn't call to mind where i'd seen it no i don't remember even now was it in the street was it in pecksniff's parlour said tigg in pecksniff's parlour echoed jonas fetching a long breath you didn't mean when yes cried tigg when there was a very charming and delightful little family party at which yourself and your respected father assisted well never mind him said jonas he's dead and there's no help for it 
dead is he cried tigg venerable old gentleman is he dead you're very like him jonas received this compliment with anything but good grace perhaps because of his own private sentiments in reference to the personal appearance of his deceased parent perhaps because he was not best pleased to find that montague and tigg were one that gentleman perceived it and tapping him familiarly on the sleeve beckoned him to the window from this moment mr montague's jocularity and flow of spirits were remarkable do you find me at all changed since that time he asked speak plainly jonas looked hard at his waistcoat and jewels and said rather ecod was i at all seedy in those days asked montague precious seedy said jonas mr montague pointed down into the street where bailey and the cab were in attendance neat perhaps dashing do you know whose it is no mine do you like this room must have cost a lot of money said jonas you're right mine too why don't you he whispered this and nudged him in the side with his elbow why don't you take premiums instead of paying em that's what a man like you should do join us jonas stared at him in amazement is that a crowded street asked montague calling his attention to the multitude without very said jonas only glancing at it and immediately afterwards looking at him again there are printed calculations said his companion which will tell you pretty nearly how many people will pass up and down that thoroughfare in the course of a day i can tell you how many of them will come in here merely because they find this office here knowing no more about it than they do at the pyramids <laughs> join us you shall come in cheap jonas looked at him harder and harder i can tell you said tigg in his ear how many of them will buy annuities effect insurances bring us their money in hundred shapes and ways force it upon us treat us as if we were the mint yet know no more about us than you do of that crossing sweeper at the corner not so much <laughs> jonas gradually broke into a smile yup said montague giving him a pleasant thrust in the breast you're too deep for us you dog or i wouldn't have told you dine with me to-morrow in pall mall i will said jonas done cried montague wait a bit take these papers with you and look em over see he said snatching some printed forms from the table b is a little tradesman clerk parson artist author any common thing you like yes said jonas looking greedily over his shoulder well b wants a loan say fifty or a hundred pound perhaps more no matter b proposes self and two securities b is accepted two securities give a bond b assures his own life for double the amount and brings two friends lives also just to patronize the office ha <laughs> ha is that a good notion ecod that's a capital notion cried jonas but does he really do it do it repeated the chairman b's hard up my good fellow and will do anything don't you see it's my idea it does you honour i'm blessed if it don't said jonas i think it does replied the chairman and i'm proud to hear you say so b pays the highest lawful interest that ain't much interrupted jonas right quite right retorted tigg and hard it is upon the part of the law that it should be so confoundedly down upon us unfortunate victims when it takes such amazing good interest for itself from all its clients but charity begins at home and justice begins next door well the law being hard upon us we're not exactly soft upon b for besides charging b the regular interest we get b's premium and b's friends premiums and we charge b for the bond and whether we accept him or not we charge b for inquiries we keep a man at a pound a week to make em and we charge b a trifle for the secretary and in short my good fellow we stick it to b up hill and down dale and make a devilish comfortable little property out of him ha <laughs> ha 
i drive b in point of fact said tigg pointing to the cabriolet and a thoroughbred horse he is <laughs> jonas enjoyed this joke very much indeed it was quite in his peculiar vein of humour then said tigg montague we grant annuities on the very lowest and most advantageous terms known in the money market and the old ladies and gentlemen down in the country buy em <laughs> and we pay em too perhaps <laughs> but there's a responsibility in that said jonas looking doubtful i take it all myself said tigg montague here i am responsible for everything the only responsible person in the establishment <laughs> and then there are the life assurance without loans the common policies very profitable very comfortable money down you know repeated every year capital fun but when they begin to fall in observed jonas it's all very well while the office is young but when the policies begin to die that's what i'm a-thinking of at the first start my dear fellow said montague to show you how correct your judgment is we had a couple of unlucky deaths that brought us down to a grand piano brought you down to where cried jonas i'll give you my sacred word of honour said tigg montague that i'll raise money on every other individual piece of property and was left alone in the world with a grand piano and it was an upright grand too so that i couldn't even sit upon it but my dear fellow we got over it we granted a great deal many new policies that week liberal allowance to solicitors by the by and got it over in no time whenever they should chance to fall in heavily as you very justly observe they may one of these days then he finished the sentence in so low a whisper that only one disconnected word was audible and that imperfectly but it sounded like bolt why you're as bold as brass said jonas in the utmost admiration a man can well afford to be as bold as brass my good fellow when he gets gold in exchange cried the chairman with a laugh that shook him from head to foot you'll dine with me to-morrow at what time asked jonas seven here's my card take the documents i'll see you'll join us i don't know about that said jonas there's a good deal to be looked into first you shall look said montague slapping him on the back into anything and everything you please but you'll join us i am convinced you were made for it bull me obedient to the summons and the little bell the waistcoat appeared being charged to show jonas out it went before and the voice within it cried as usual by your leave there by your leave gentlemen from the boardroom by your leave mr montague being left alone pondered for some moments and then said raising his voice is nadgett in the office there here he is sir and promptly entered shutting the boardroom door after him as carefully as if he were about to plot a murder he was the man at a pound a week who made the inquiries and was no virtue or merit in nadgett that he transacted all his anglo-bengali business secretly and in the closest confidence for he was born to be a secret he was a short dried-up withered old man who seemed to have secreted his very blood for nobody would have given him the credit for the possession of six ounces of it in his whole body how he lived was a secret where he lived was a secret and even what he was a secret in his musty old pocket-book he carried contradictory cards some of which he called himself a coal merchant in others a wine merchant in others a commission agent in others a collector in others an accountant as if he really didn't know the secret himself he was always keeping appointments in the city and the other man never seemed to come he would sit on change for hours looking at everybody who walked in and out and would do the like at garraways and other business coffee-rooms in some of which he would occasionally be seen drying a very damp pocket-handkerchief before the fire 
and still looking over his shoulder for the man who never appeared he was mildewed threadbare shabby always had a flue upon his legs and back and kept his linen so secretly buttoning up and wrapping over that he might have none perhaps he hadn't he carried one stained beaver glove which he dangled before him by the forefinger as he walked or sat but even its fellow was a secret some people said he had been a bankrupt others that he had gone an infant into an ancient chancery suite which was still depending but it was all a secret he carried bits of sealing wax and a hieroglyphical old copper seal in his pocket and often secretly indicted letters in corner boxes of the trysting places before mentioned but they never appeared to go to anybody for he would put them into a secret place in his coat and deliver them to himself weeks afterwards very much to his own surprise quite yellow he was that sort of man that if he had died worth a million of money or had died worth twopence halfpenny everybody would have been perfectly satisfied and would have said it was just as they expected and yet he belonged to a class a race peculiar to the city who are secrets as profound to one another as they are to the rest of mankind mr nadgett said montague copying jonas chuzzlewit's address upon a piece of paper from the card which was still lying on the table any information about this name i should be glad to have myself don't you mind what it is any you can scrape together bring me bring it to me mr nadgett nadgett put on his spectacles and read the name attentively then looked at the chairman over his glasses and bowed and then took them off put them in their case and then put the case in his pocket when he had done so he looked without his spectacles at the paper as it lay before him and at the same time produced his pocket-book from somewhere about the middle of his spine large as it was it was very full of documents but he found a place for this one and having clasped it carefully passed it by a kind of solemn ledger domain into the same region as before he withdrew with another bow and without a word opening the door no wider than was sufficient for his passage out and shutting it as carefully as before the chairman of the board employed the rest of the morning in affixing his signed manual of gracious acceptance to various new proposals of annuity purchase and assurance the company was looking up for they flowed in gaily End of chapter twenty seven